It's been quite quiet uh, during every Sunday for the past one and a half years. <laughs> so it's glad to, glad to see some people making some noise. Um, I'd like to uh, turn with you to a passage of scripture that in some ways distinguishes between two kinds of Christians and will also answer the question, why is it some Christians get stronger and stronger and their faith gets stronger and stronger and others never seem to grow in their faith, never seem to have it proven to them that God is real in their life. Yeah, And uh, the passage I'd like to turn to, to you with is um, Genesis chapter 13. And uh, we are going to look at Abraham and Lot. And then after that, we're going to go to uh, another passage of scripture in Second uh, Samuel chapter 23. But uh, before we go to that, I need to prepare you with uh, this passage from uh, Genesis chapter 13. And we'll go into chapter 14. Uh, let's turn to chapter 13 of Genesis. Abraham has left the Ur of the Chaldees and Lot has gone with him. And then he and that whole entourage um, make a detour to Egypt because of the fact that there was um, famine. And they come out of Egypt very rich. And in chapter 13, verse 1, So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. And Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent has been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made therefore there formerly. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with him, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. Now before uh, verse 6, Lot and Abraham were in some ways indistinguishable. Yeah, They're indistinguishable. Both of them left Ur. Both of them went to Egypt. Both of them came around. Both of them were rich. Both of them, by the look of their own, uh, their wealth, look pretty much the same, okay? Pretty much the same. Both of them were wealthy. But there was a strife, and that strife between Abraham and Lot uh, showed up certain things. And these things that show up are very instructive for us. Verse 7, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite was dwelling there in, in the land. So Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. It is not, is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valleys of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go up to Zohar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. It's interesting when the Bible speaks about lifting up your eyes, the lifting up of the eyes is not just a physical thing, but it's a thing in which there is not really a separation between our inner vision and the external vision of what you actually see optically. Um, when the Bible uses the words lifted up your eyes, and the King James is very, very uses that phrase a lot. Um, I'm, I'm reading from the NASB. Um, lifting up the eyes reveals what the lens through which you're looking at reality is. Yeah. If you lift up your eyes, your heart will immediately color what you see and how you interpret reality. And Lot looked, lifted up his eyes and he could see no longer, no further than the fact that the Valley of Jordan was well watered. It's really great real estate. It's wonderful. It's the best. Yeah. He could see no further than that. That's what he saw when he lifted up his eyes. And, uh, Abram settled so Abraham, verse 12, Abram, 
settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. And verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes. And there's the lifting up the eyes. And Abraham lifting up the eyes was different from Lot. He saw different things and he actually heard different things when he looked. Imagine you can look and then you can hear at the same time. Look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I'll give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And so you see the difference between Lot and Abram. Lot was driven, his vision was driven by his, himself, his, his, his own good, right? The good that he wanted for himself. What Lot wanted was smooth. He, what he wanted was smooth and blessed. What he wanted was the valley that was blessed, that looked blessed at least. But he could see no further than his own uh, self, his own self-achievement or his self-comfort or his self-orientated devices. I'm not going to call him selfish. Uh, there's not enough here that says he's selfish, but at least we, we see that his orientated, the orientation was towards self. He could see no further than the physical good that mirrored what he wanted. So what drove Lot was actually um, self. He could see no further. Whereas when Abraham looked up, he lifted up his eyes, he saw a vision of God. What he saw was what God was speaking to him. And God was saying, from now when you lift up your eyes, and it's interesting that his eyes began to be open to what God had to say, only after he separated from Lot. He separated himself from the Lot element in his life, and only when he did that, did he begin to see visions that were not from that generated out of himself, but they were visions that were generated from God. And God said to him, this is the land I'm going to give you. And the difference between the land that God gave to Abram and the land that he was pro- uh, that God was promising Abram and the land that Lot chose was that Abram had the mountain. He had the mountains. And the mountains were where the giants were. And there were warfare all there. The, giant, the, the mountains spe- spoke during those days of, of demonic powers or gods that dwelt on the tops of these mountains. The valleys signified the cities that man created. The valleys were significant in the sense that they they showed forth man's control of his environment, the and man's exploitation of the environment, the man's use of the environment according to his own vision. And as and they were both indistinguishable. Until there came a place in which there was a conflict between the two of them and they could not both live in the same place. And it was in this that the difference in the visions began to be shown and God began to distinguish between Lot and Abraham. And Abraham began to distinguish between himself and Lot. At the end of the day, what God is doing is that he's preparing us to be seed of Abraham or the, or the, the children of Abraham who dwell in the mountains. Now, what Lot Lot did not have was a vision of life that has warfare in it. Lot's vision of life was smooth and blessed. And there is a way in which, in our culture, or in our own, where, where we practice our Christianity, we have a Christianity that tends to be like Lot, don't you think? I want smooth, I want blessed. I need God because at the, at the center of my life is myself. And I got, need God to help me to get a happy life. That's why we have life, liberty, and happiness. John Locke actually had a different word for, at that, on the third word. It was life, liberty, and 
property, right? And, uh, and the idea of happiness that the, I think the founding fathers had, uh, whoever those guys were, I, it's your history. Um, the idea of happiness was actually different from the classical um, idea of happiness, which was from Aristotle, which was uh, happiness as the, the greatest good. So a person is happy not just because he feels emotionally happy or psychologically um, um, lifted up, but because of the fact that he or she grasped hold of the good. It may be a costly good, but it's a good that's bigger than himself or herself. The subjectivization of our own uh, good is in the word happy. In the, in the, in the medieval, medieval period, the center of all of creation and everything was connected was God. The call of creation was to glorify God. So humankind never thought of the imagination as something that was original or creative. It was just following God. And the medieval period was, was, was such in which men tried to follow God as best as they could because God was at the center. When we come to the Renaissance period, then man becomes the measure and God is, gets kind of thrown out of the picture. He's either sort of uh, uh, um, passive and he doesn't deal with our, 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 our affairs just like a clockmaker who has made a clock, wound it up and then leaves it. Or he just doesn't exist. By the time we come to the 20th century, what we have is a, situ- a situation in which man becomes the measure, man determines what he wants, he becomes more of the city, he becomes more of the valleys, more of lot. And as a result of that, um, there is no hope for being able to find God because God is out of the picture, because God has to fit in with the, our own rationalistic uh, thought. And as a result of that, with Nietzsche, with the, with the, with the 20th century philosophers, what we, what we have is no longer God as the integrating point for all our search, but actually ourselves. And so when you come to Freud, what we have is this, uh, the, the, the abandoning of the idea that we can have this search for truth or for meaning or for God. And Freud basically um, uh, put forth the idea that you should abandon the search for God because there's no assurance that we can find God, but we can find self-fulfillment. And what's important is that we can look for happiness and, for, and look for situations in which everything comports with who we are. And so by the time we come to uh, Freud in the 20th century and all that, um, we can put it this way. Philip Reeve, uh, who was a, 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 a student of Freud, not a student of Freud, but um, a scholar of Freud, says, in the past, religious man was born to be saved. And so constantly we're asking, how must, can we repent before God? But today, psychological man is born to be pleased. And so with Freud onwards, what you have is the pleasing of self as the center of it. So that God is employed in the service of the pleasing of self. So uh, as a result of that, what we have is a situation in which Lot seems very, very familiar. He's very, very familiar because of the fact that he has a vision for for himself. And when he lifted up his eyes or when he lifts up his eyes, the Lot actually sees good for himself. Now, what we believe as Christians is that God has better for us us than, than the good that we see. That when we lift up our eyes, what God has is a huge vision that has dimensionality. It has amazing things that uh, Lot would never have seen for himself. Look what God said to Abraham. After Lot had separated from him, now he said, lift up your eyes and look from the, from the place where you are. See how God is, is always say, is saying, I want you to look not to the place that you are, but from the place that you are. Speaking of future. So God's vision for us is not just flat, not just two-dimensional. It's not just your good based upon your own lens. But he's saying, look up northwards, southwards, eastwards, and westwards for all the land which you see, I will give it to you. And can you see God's personal touch in that? I will give it to you. He's not saying you're going to achieve that. Yeah, he didn't say you're going to, you're going to be so great and, uh, and you can do it by yourself. You, you, you just go for it. 
and you will do it. He says, I will give to you. God will always be in the picture in that whole transaction. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants will also be numbered. This is in contrast to Lot, who, of course, his descendants became uninvolved in the purposes of God. So arise, walk about the land through the length. There's length, there's depth, there's breadth, there's height. And God and Abraham moved his, his tent according to the way that God had given him a vision. And so what you have is that two kinds of Christianity, it, it seems. And I wonder whether we can sometimes feel very confused about these two elements because God wants to bless us and he makes smooth our path, our rough path. And Lot one went for smooth and blessed. But the center of what was driving him was not God, but those very blessings and those very smooth things that he had. Abraham, on the other hand, uh, was given a life in which there's a lot of battle, a lot of warfare, a lot of enemies. It was not smooth, but God promised he would make smooth the rough places. And there's a big difference between that. Grab, Lord grabbed hold of smooth and Abraham took the path of God that seemed to be rougher. It seemed to be one of warfare and, in, and, and, and with the promise that God in the warfare, in the mountains that you face, I will establish myself in every place where the enemy was God there. That is the difference between Abram and Lot. Lot's kind of vision did not give him a vision of God enough to be able to fight his enemies. In that sense, Lot's vision was dysfunctional because it did not take into account reality. By allowing so-called that Freudian, if you let me do a little stretch there, that Freudian kind of psychological self to impose upon reality being pleased, his vision of reality did not match up with the hardness of life. It did not match up with the evil that was there. So he said, it says, uh, the, the writer of Genesis says, and he pitched his tent towards Sodom. Later on, you begin to find, I'm mean, actually the, 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 the NRSV says, he pitched himself at so- Sodom or, or, or at, so not just towards the Sodom, but just the, I, th- I think the understanding is just outside Sodom. Later on, we begin to find a few chapters later, he was already in Sodom. Not only was he in Sodom, he was in the gates of Sodom so that he had identified himself so fully with Sodom that he was part of the leadership because it was the leaders that actually were at the gates. The gates were places of business, of administration, of rulership. Yeah. But anyway, I want to just put this, put it to you. And I think... As I think about the prayer and I pray about the things that are coming up in the years to come, it has become very much more pressing upon me that we as a church need to be a people who are equipped for warfare. I don't mean physical warfare. I don't, don't mean anything hateful. But I believe that there is going to be such pressure that, that the, what used to be orthodox will not be orthodox anymore. It will be heterodox. I believe that there's a time in which we will have to prove to ourselves whether God is real in our life or not. And so I want to actually speak this message with this kind of lens, with this color. I want to speak to those of you who have never experienced the reality of God. I want to speak to those of you who, no matter how much you've tried to experience God real, and try to figure it out in your head, you can't prove God in your own life. And I want to say to you that there is a very simple way in which you will know whether God is real in your life or God loves you or not. In the next few moments that I will be uh, speaking, right? So if you never experience God in a real way to such an extent that God is so real that you can't deny him, listen on, okay? Listen on. So I'm speaking to those of you who are Christians for donkey's years, your grandfather Christians, or and those of you who are new Christians, and some of you who can't figure out whether you want to be a Christian or not, okay? So I want to say, so, so, so keep that in mind, because Lot 
at the end of the day, when the test came, he didn't have enough of the reality of God to be able to stand to the wickedness that was there. And in the chapter, chapter 14, not realizing that, that life is full of, of uh, warfare and full of battles, um, he was caught up in this uh, rebellion that the king of Sodom and king of Gomorrah had over their overlords, the kings of Babylon, of, uh, not Babylon, but uh, the Chaldean, Chaldeans. And uh, it's what we see is that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah tried to take grass back their own rights from these overlords and fought in a big battle against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. But the battle went badly. And in verse 8, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed in battle against them in the valley of Sidim against Kedullah Omar, king of Elam and Tidal, king of Goim and Amravel, king of Shina and Ariok, king of Elasa, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tarpits and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. So they were defeated and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country and then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. He was living in Sodom. See, he was before he was towards Sodom. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. Perhaps what was driving his heart was towards Sodom. That's one, one way you can think about him. He was towards Sodom. By the time he was in Sodom, and then he was in Sodom, he, he, he was taken, right? And then a fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew, what was going on. And, and immediately, verse 20, sorry, verse 14, when Abram heard this, his relative had, that had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and divided his forces against them by night, and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and all the women and the people. And so Abraham, with his 318 men, you can see he was ready for battle. He, he ran his house differently. Lot, on the other hand, was completely unready for battle. Actually, Lot's family line just ended up in just complete uh, disarray and complete uh, corruption because he hadn't trained his family. I believe that God is preparing us for a time in which we will be able to not only do battle, but we'll be able to stand in the day of, 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 of testing and actually provide help and um, deliverance for many people. We will be a blessing. And so I, can, I see the two visions very clearly before my eyes. I see the two visions of Christianity very clearly. I see there's a vision of Christianity that puts the, 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 the inner prospering, the prospering of our pleasing of ourselves high on our lips. And then I see that there's another Christianity that's completely different from that, that of Abraham. And I'm not sure whether the church of Jesus Christ in the West is ready for that. Um, one of the men uh, the, of God that I was privileged to know is a man by the name of Paul Kaufman. I'm not sure whether you've heard of Paul Kaufman. Paul Kaufman was the founder and uh, CEO, the director of Asian Outreach. Um, he is an American, and uh, he uh, had a lot to do with China and what was going on during the um, Cultural Revolution and beyond. And he talks about a time when he went to China to go and visit some of the Christians that had been released from prison and the more and more he talked with these Christians who had been in prison for 30 years, 35 years, 15 years, 20 years, the more he realized 
that the quality of their Christianity, the state of their soul was very different from what he was used to in Christianity that he had grown up with. And he remember, and he, and he tells us about one meeting that he had with a very old lady. She was bent over. She was in her nineties and she had been in prison for about 30 years. She had endured suffering and there was no, any, no hope of her being released from prison. She and many others had been imprisoned by the Communist Party. Uh, actually, hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. And he went and interviewed her. She could hardly move with facility because she was so old and she had been beaten before. But as he saw her, as she came in front of him, he was totally blown away by the glory and the radiance that was in her face and the joy that was in her when she talked about her experiences with Jesus. And she talked about how the Lord was with all of them in prison in Beijing. And during that time, how he comforted them and he came close to them. And how their whole life was filled with a series of miracles in which God would deliver them from suffering, deliver deliver them from uh, bad consequences of being Christians and all that. And he was so close to them. He said, Paul Kaufman said that when he talked to her, it felt like Jesus was right there with her talking to him. He was so encouraged that at the end of it, he said, let's pray together. You know, like a good American Christian is like very pious and all that. Let's pray. So he prayed a long prayer. And then he said, and then she prayed. And when she prayed, she experienced, she prayed with such closeness and intimacy, such glory. The glory of the Lord came there. I wish I never prayed. Because of the fact that his prayer seemed so small and so shallow and so superficial because of the prayer that she was praying. How many of you know who Hank Hanegraaff is? Okay. Hank Hanegraaff is one of those people that I've always considered him kind of a crotchety man with bad attitude. But he's changed, you know. He's always uh, debunking charismatic stuff and things of the spirit, debunking. He's, he's a person who goes after, uh, he, uh, after cults. I think he still does. But one of the groups that they, that they red, uh, red flagged was a group called the Little Flock. They were actually disciples of Watchman Nee and Witness Lee. And he had heard a lot about them as a cult. And so CRI, Christian Research Institute, talked about them in very, very negative ways. And they did that for many, many years. And then he got a chance to meet one of the members of the Little Flock in America. And the more he talked to this man from Little Flock, he was more and more convinced that Little Flock it's not a cult. It's not heretical. It's something pretty good. They have a really strong spiritual life. And so he sent his emissary to China to do research to see what was going on in that church. And this lady went and did extensive interviews with these people. And she said when she came back, and then I went into a house and I met with this husband and wife who had been in prison for about 15 years. They had endured tremendous suffering and in the midst of their suffering, their daughter died and other relatives died and they were not allowed to see them. And I asked them, what brought in, brought on this persecution? And she, and, and this woman said, there was an American organization, Christian organization that wrote about us. And they wrote so many things that were negative of us that were not true that the Chinese government 
got into it. And they threw many of us into prison. And I was in prison for 15 years. And as she began to tell her story, this emissary from CRI began to, in horror, realize that the reason why hundreds of uh, little flock people were, were put in prison just for that, for that season, there were much more who were put in prison. The reason why they were put in prison was because of the article that CRI had written, which uh, Hank Hanegraaff's staff had written. The man and woman who had been talking to this woman, this, this emissary from, uh, from CRI, spoke with such glory, such grace, and they felt as if God was present, so full of love, so full of power and so full of comfort that she could not, in all good conscience, um, refrain from telling them that they were the ones who wrote. And so she blurted it out. I'm sorry to say that I'm the one who actually wrote that article. Because she, she herself was the one. She knew exactly what they were talking about. And she says, she says to Hank, Hank Hanegraaff when she comes back, when they looked at me and, and there was such love and such joy mingled with sadness that all they wanted to do was to make me not feel bad about what I had done. They had lost family members because of that article. And this, I believe, was one of the things that caused that whole organization, Hank Hanegraaff, and I don't know where they are now, but to take a turn and retract their whole statement and, and apologize for what they had done. What I want to say is this. There is a kind of glory that's different from the glory of Jordan and the valley and the bless me kind of smoothness. There's a different kind of glory. It is not of this world. It is not like anything in this world. And it is the difference between the glory of God, of Abraham, and that of Lot that must distinguish us as a church. And so because of that, I want to put it to you that actually it is in this place that God begins to establish difference. It is difference that causes his glory to be seen. Not similarity, not just bridges, but actually difference. It is difference that causes poignancy to happen. If it's, if you can only agree with people in the world, if you can only agree with them and identify with them, there's no glory in that. It's, it's not bad, it's good. But it's the difference. It's the difference that causes the glory of God to be evangelistic because it shows up what God has. And so I want to put it to you that actually, it's not lots kind of Christianity, the one that identifies much with the city that holds a day, but a certain kind of Christianity in which God proves himself in the places of uncertainty, the places of warfare, the places in which you are stuck. It's in this place that God actually shows himself. And so at the end of the, the battle, he rescues uh, Lot and he, and on all his property. And then he meets somebody very, very interesting. We were talking about that during communion. After his return from the defeat of the, the enemies, verse 18 of chapter 14, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the God Most High. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of the God Most High possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Melchizedek tells Abraham, it is God who has actually delivered them into your hands. It is God that has become your strength. And Abraham gave him a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give the people to me and take the people for yourself. Sorry, take the goods for yourself. So Sodom was, king of Sodom was saying, you can have all the spoils, but just give me the people. 
And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread of the, or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear. You would say, I have made Abraham rich. I will make, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me in a escrow and memory. Let them take their share. So Abraham knows the protocol. All those who went with him, they should be able to take their, 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 their spoil. So he's not dysfunctional in the world. He knows the protocol. But he says, as far as I'm concerned, I do not want to be identified with any kind of human way in which I have been given the battle. No one will get the credit except God. And again, Abraham distinguishes himself. He distinguishes himself from Lot. He distinguishes himself from the, the, the warfare of that day. He distinguishes himself from Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah. And it's in this place, he begins to show himself that he is actually eating and drinking from a different pool, a different spring. And as Melchizedek feeds him with bread and wine, it tells us of the feeding that we are going to be having in Jesus. It portrayed, it, 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 it looked forward to Jesus feeding with us with his supernatural life. His life that was given to us on the cross 2,000 years ago. Isn't that amazing? Abraham was drinking from a different spring. He was even drinking from a different cup from Lot. And if we don't see the difference, you will actually find that the similarities between Lot and Abraham will confuse you. It's all from a different cup. It's a different cup. What Lot was going for was driven by his own desire for his own self. And that desire for his own self cannot be distinguished from the, the goods of the world. But Abraham was clear. He was saying, I'm following God. I am not in the center. God is in the center. And my good is God. And I wonder whether this is important for us as we look at the days behind uh, in, in front of us. I want to speak about this, especially for those who are feeling that you are in a situation in which it feels hopeless and you can't see for the life of you where God is. And so it's this text that I want to really uh, focus on today. And it's found in 2 Chron- uh, Chronicles chapter 23. Okay, 2 Chronicles chapter 23. It's not a passage that's spoken about a lot. But I felt led for the past two weeks to just read it and read it and read it again and to try to listen to God about what he was speaking. Second Chronicles, in some ways, especially verse, the chapter 23, seems out of place for our generation. It's out of place because it seems so warlike. In some ways, it can feel offensive for those of us who are pacifists. But it mainly speaks about warfare in the spiritual sense. Yeah. And so if you can turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 23, there's a little passage from verse 8 onwards that I'd like to... Um, sorry. Did I say Second Chronicles? It's actually Second Samuel. Sorry about that. Second Chronicles was last week. Second, Second Samuel chapter twenty-three. Okay. Thank you. Well done. And it has to do with three mighty men who have distinguished themselves from the others. In some ways, these three mighty men knew God to such an extent that their knowledge of God and their conviction about God was stronger than all the powers of the enemies and the overwhelming odds. So let's have a look at this. And here you see the difference. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshua Bashebet, a Tecmanite, chief of the captains. He was called Adino. Sounds Italian, isn't it? The Esnite, because of 800 slain by him at one time. And after him, verse 9, was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, 
he had to be a mighty man to have a, a surname like that. Can you imagine the persecution he would have had? The absolute, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David. When they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle, and the men of Israel had withdrawn, he arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. Now after him was the third one, Shammah, the son of Aji, a Hararite. And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot. He defended it and struck the Philistines and the Lord brought about a great victory. So these are the three mighty men of David. I'm not going to focus on on Adino, the Italian, but I will focus on two others, maybe one, Eliezer, because I felt that there is a word for somebody, or many of us I, actually, I believe, who are in a spot like Eliezer. Eliezer, together with David, found themselves surrounded, and you can see this in Second Chronicles as well, actually, in the account in Second Chronicles, surrounded by the Philistines, also in a, in a, uh, in a, in a plot, an like agricultural plot that had barley in it. And what it says here is that Eliezer, the son of Dodo, one of the three mighty men with David, they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle, and the men of Israel had withdrawn. The men of Israel had withdrawn. Have you been in situations where you're left alone? Where all your friends all of the people who are supporting you have gone. Have you ever been in a, such a situation? Have you been in a situation in which things are going really well? Lots of people are kind of rah-rah about you and then suddenly they begin to fade. Jesus experienced that, right? There was a multitude and then after that they left and he says, are you going to leave me as well? Have you been in situations where you're on, all on your own? And, then, and when you're on your, on your own, you find yourself actually very discouraged because people have lost hope in you and they are not uh, with you. I know sometimes we can experience this even in the work of the Lord. Yeah, even in the work of the Lord. Well, let me tell you something. It says immediately after that, and then everybody had withdrawn, and then he arose. It is when people withdraw from you that you will distinguish yourself from all the rest. It is when all the help and all the hope and all the services leave you that is that it becomes your opportunity to know whether God is with you or not. The time when everybody withdraws is the time for you. And if you don't understand that, all your enthusiasm and all your optimism is going to be based upon whether people are supporting of you. And I believe that the church has to be a supportive community. That's, that's, that's basic. But there are times in which God is wanting to distinguish you and to raise you up to such an extent, you and me, not just you, me too, especially, especially I'm finding this especially true. And I, it never, it never, it never ends. I thought this is only when you're a baby Christian. Now, now I'm a senior, senior Christian. And it still never, never ends. But there's going to be a time in which God is going to cause you to know whether he's real or not in your life or not. And if you never experience the reality of God, maybe you have never experienced a situation like that, that battlefield. God is going to establish you. And the only way he can establish you is not by, by, by your learning or your figuring it out, but by being pushed to the limit. And it is in this place where everybody withdrew. It says here, when they all withdrew, I love this part, next to each other, the men of Israel had withdrawn. Verse 10, he arose. I love it. Isn't that great? Everyone had withdrawn. When they withdrew, he arose and distinguished himself. Now, the reason why I think many Christians are weak and have not many testimonies of great things that God has done is because 
They've come to this situation and people withdraw and they're looking for community to actually support them. And by, and right, rightly so. But actually they didn't realize that there was another deeper reality that was going on. God wants to show himself real in your life and he will show himself real in your life and he will show you his love. He'll show you whether he loves you or not. He'll show you whether he's real or not. He shows you whether he's powerful or not. You can only know that in that battlefield. And I tell you something. God is going to actually bring us and push us into this, these things. That is why I'm not afraid to preach about this because of, even though it seems out of time from our days in which we don't like this, to hear about battles, it seems just really gory. It's just really out of time, very anachronistic. But there is a way in which in the spiritual realm, you and I will be given a chance to experience the reality of God to such an extent that you cannot be, you cannot be swayed anymore. For many years in my life, I was filled with doubts. For many years in life, when I went to college, I sort of turned away from God because of the fact that I just couldn't believe it anymore. And I hope that, I hope that, that by reading a lot of apologetics and philosophy it would help me. It did help me. But at the end of the day, I had to know for myself whether this God, who now I know exists, really cares about me or not. Because there's one thing to know that he exists, it's another thing to know whether he does care for you or not, or he has any connection with you. And Adino, or sorry, and Eliezer comes to this point in this plot barley ground with David. The Philistines are coming and everybody goes away. The thing is not to be bitter. Not to be bitter when you are disappointed by someone. Not to be dip, b- bitter because what God is going to do is to show you what you've depended upon. So, around 2002 or 2001, we as a church wanted to buy this building, this beautiful building now, now that you see around you, for those of you who are here. We wanted to buy this. And one of the people that really encouraged me was a church member, not from, not from here, but from Malaysia, who was, who's, who's, who's rich, yeah, very rich. And what he did was that he encouraged me and he said, Michael, you go for it and I will back you up. I am so for this project. I've been praying about it and I'm, and, 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 and I cannot, cannot sleep without it in my mind that I'm going to, and then he whispered in my ear how much he was going to, he has set aside for, for this building. And it's this encouragement that I in some ways relied upon and I had a little bit of a spring in my step when I said, oh, we're going to go for it. Because I knew that this person is going to give quite a lot of money, at least to encourage us. Do you know what? He never gave one cent. He never gave one cent. Praise God. Never gave one cent. In fact, he withdrew. He withdrew. And it was in this place, I remember, I realized how much my faith depended upon what the Lord said and what, the, what, what depended upon this person. We were supposed to pay $2.8 million. We were a church of about 70 or 80 people. I think maybe 80 people. And I remember, and Sonia, Sonia was there too, and, 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 and some of you were there. And, and we had sought the Lord, and the Lord says, go for it. The Lord has given us this land. And we were all gung-ho. And then suddenly, we looked at ourselves, and we realized we actually don't have much money. Most, most of our members were people who were fresh out of college who didn't have a job. Well, not, I, I, I exaggerate. It's not most, but many of them. Hardly any salary and all that. We were a very poor church. Doing quite well, pretty poor church. I mustn't overstate our poverty. And I remember at that time, a man who was representing a developer who wanted to sue us because they wanted to buy the building. But in our contract with the owners of the building, we had the first right of refusal. He wanted to pay more money than we were given as the price tag for this church. We were, we were, we were told it was going to cost us 2.8 million. And this person was willing to pay more. 
And so they sued us. And they sued us so that we had to go to court. But just before we went to court, his lawyer gave me a call. And when he gave me a call, he said, look, there's a way we can work this out. You take the building and we will take the parking lot. Because I've looked at your accounts and I don't know how you got to our account. Because I've looked at your accounts and I realized you cannot afford this money. You have, you're nowhere near that. And I found that my friend had just, had just withdrawn. And somehow out of nothing, right? Out of no encouragement, nothing, no, nothing I could see, no community, nothing. Out of, out of zero, something rose up in me. And I told him, so you are saying that if we are able to buy this building, it will be a miracle from God because you say it's impossible. The man was, the, the lawyer was completely taken aback. He was taken aback. I myself was taken aback because I'm usually not so bold. I'm not, I'm usually nicer too. It's, and this time I said, yes, because you say, you said, and don't withdraw that. And I pushed him. I said, you said that we will not be able to afford it. And if we can afford it, I would say, you must say that this is God. He said, uh, okay. I never heard from him. Never heard from him again. And then after that, time passed. And I spoke to the treasurer and, the, and I asked the treasurer, how much have we spent in lawyer's fees? He said, we've spent almost 300000 300000 in lawyer's fees. And again, I experienced this dread. And I read many stories about pastors who have led their churches into big projects and all that. And after that, they got bankrupt and who have been in prison. I said, well. well. And at this time, I began to really pray. And again, this rising thing happened again. As I prayed in the spirit, I prayed in the spirit. I gave it all to him and I gave it all to God. And I realized that there's nothing I could do to actually make it happen. We are too far into it. We can't withdraw. And because we can't withdraw, God must do something. And I felt like Eliezer. It says Eliezer held on to the sword until his fingers can clung to the sword. So much so that I think that at the end of the battle, they had to pry his fingers off from the sword. But the sword has to do with the sword of the spirit, right? The word of God. And Eliezer knew how to fight. But really, the, the, the big drama was that he had to hold on to the, the sword and it brought to the point where there is nothing supportive in the natural, in, that's optical, that he can actually depend upon to help him. And it's in this place that God distinguished him from everyone who ran away. And that is why I find that I am never, never moved by how many people join us, how many people are in, in for, uh, together with us or not. I'm never, never moved. I've had too many experiences in which I've been alone, especially in my past, especially in planting churches. I've been alone when people my, in my own church have actually took <laughs> their head and prayed for me. I've been in situations where there were people who are against me, who are, who are for me, all, all kinds of things, but all who are left. And it's in this situation that I've experienced that God stood by me and comforted me. Paul says, and my, as my, and my, and my first defense, all left me, but the Lord stood by me and comforted me. That is the start of God proving himself real to you. If you want to know the reality of God, you put yourself in a situation that God has for you. Then you will know. You will not need a preacher. You will need, not need anybody to convince you that God is real. Because he met you. But you have to be willing to take the, take the, 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 the step into it. Amen? And this is what made Eliezer one of the mighties. The mighties are distinguished by the fact that nobody is with them. And you will be in a situation, and every Christian has to be in that situation. If you haven't been in a situation, you haven't matured yet. You've never been left alone. You have never experienced maturity. You will never be mature. You can go to all the seminaries you want. 
but you will never be mature. You can read all the theology that you want. You will never be mature until you come to a place where you're one there. And you don't look to community to be your salvation, but you look to God because there's no one else. My hope is that there will be community around you. But if you look to, 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 to other people around, they will withdraw. And when they withdraw, you will be given the opportunity to stand there with nothing except God and turn your heart towards Him and cling to your sword. Cling to your sword. I don't know how you fight. I don't know how you swing your sword. But the most important thing that the, 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 the writer of Second Chronicles was saying is that he hung, clung to his sword. Amen? Shama. He was in an even more dire situation because there was no David next to him. He was alone in the field of, of, of Bali. And it says here that he took his stand. What did you see that? And he took his stand. Or he took his place. Shama is different from Eliezer because it doesn't say that God rose up in him or he rose up. He just took his place. You see that? Let's make sure I, I got it right. But he took his stand. Verse, um, I got so much sweat in my eyes that it's verse 12, right? But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defending it and struck the Philistines and the Lord brought out a great victory. He took his stand. To take your stand is different from, from rising up, okay? To take your stand means you decide that when there is a thing that is of consequence, you are willing to stand on the side of God and lose everything. There is no guarantee that you will win. There is no guarantee that you'll be vindicated. There is no guarantee that you will survive this moment. But you have to take your stand. And when you take your stand, you may not survive the stand you're making. And when Shama did that, he died. I don't mean he died physically. But Shama, the self, the principle of his Shama self, died. On the cross, Jesus died for you and me. Because he died, we, I, you and I count our lives as no longer alive anymore. I'm crucified with Christ. When Christ died for, for us, because we, of our sin, we didn't get off scot-free, you know. He didn't, Jesus didn't just die for us and he says, okay, now you can go now. It's all forgiven. No, he says, I redeem you, now you're mine. You die to yourself. You have no more self. I mean, you have a self, but you don't, you, don't, you have no more selfish principle to live by. You can no longer do Lot. Lot may have been uh, survivable in the, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament because he gets rescued, but not in the New Testament. In the New Testament, you will die. And so Shama is more profound than Adino and more, more profound than Eliezer because of the fact that Shama says, I take my place now. He could have done it quietly, didn't know no rah-rah or anything like that. He just took his place and he says, if I perish, I perish, just like Esther. Shama is different from everybody. He's distinguished from everybody else because of the fact that he didn't depend upon having victory. He didn't depend upon people uh, validating him or him, him being vindicated. He could have been vindicated years after he died, but he took his stand. And I tell you something, as Christians, you and I will have to come to a place somewhere in our life. If you have not come to that place, you have not matured yet. But God is going to bring you there. <laughs> You and I have to come to that place where whether you get vindicated or you win or not, you take your stand there. When you take your stand, God will show you himself. He will show you himself. Not by just superficial means of vindication, but by his power, his presence. The reason why Christians in America have such great difficulty standing up for God is because they've not experienced him. They've not put themselves into a situation where they can experience Him. But God is here. And I want to invite you as a church, myself included, to come to a place where we, we forsake Lot, separate from Lot, and all the, the self-fulfilling things that he's, he's going after. And lift up your eyes towards God. Because God has something more for us. Let us pray.
I am quite certain that at this moment, there are many who are listening to this message who are in that spot where Shama and Eliezer were. Some are in that spot where Abram and Lot were. It is the Christianity, so to speak, of Abraham that allowed for Second Chronicles 23, where there was a fight, but the fight was fought by people of the Abrahamic spirit and not the Lord's spirit. I believe that in the days to come, there will be a sea change in which becoming a Christian may be costly. It has been happening to actually the majority of Christians in the world. If you consider China, Pakistan, as having the bulk of Christians, and the West having a small minority of Christians, it would be more true to say that there are more Christians that are persecuted than those who are not. I don't mean this as a doom and gloom thing, but I believe that it is in this place that God shows himself powerful and mighty. Hallelujah. Praise your name. I want to invite you to commit yourself to him right now. If your relationship with God has been number one, only so that he could give you what you need, I want to invite you to surrender it to him and say, God, I want your vision for my life. I don't want my dream. I want your destiny. Secondly, I want to live for you. I want to go where you want me to go. Thirdly, I'm willing to stand in the places and call upon you these places of tremendous uncertainty or warfare. I need to know whether you're real or not. I know my plot of ground. I know my land. I know what's up. I know the conflict I'm in. I want you to come in. Come and prove yourself. I've told countless people who are non-Christians, very easy for you to know whether God is real. Put him to the test. Go ahead. Ask for a miracle. Ask for a clear sign. Dare not. Do that. Why? Because if you, he shows himself real, then you must give your life to him. I want to invite you to put him to the test then. And he will come through. He will show how much he loves you. Separate yourself from the Lord. Then your eyes will be open. Let's lift up our eyes to Jesus, we come before you right now. I feel like especially for the youth and the children right now, Lord God, that there's a new day ahead yes, to be like St. Teresa of Avila, that as a child, she and her brother ran away because they wanted to die for you, God. It was the, the best thing that they could imagine could happen to their lives. But God, you brought them back. And thank you that Teresa of Avila helped with the purification of the Carmelite ministries, that the presence of God would come in, that you used youth willing to lay down their lives for you instead to bring the presence of God and more to this world. So we pray for our youth, and we want to be like Teresa of Avila too. We acknowledge the two kingdoms in Isaiah that Satan went to war against you. We acknowledge there's another kingdom 
full of lies and trickery. Is always trying to get us to give in, but we say, no, Lord, we're in your kingdom. We're willing to die here in your kingdom because you died for us. So put that stand of shaman us, God. Put Eliezer's arising in us right now because who can do it except you? So we open ourselves up to you right now. Thank you. Prove me now, says the Lord. If I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. We thank you, Lord, that you are well able to make yourself known to us. We pray for ourselves at BCF even now that you would make us and raise up, raise us up and form us. Help us to recognize our moment, that special moment where you distinguish yourself from everything else. In the name of Jesus, we welcome you. I want to invite you just to open your hands to the Holy Spirit right now and invite him to take a hold of your heart, your mind. We don't have to worry what to do. You will lead us gently. And if you find yourself in situations in which you're surrounded with overwhelming odds, your time has come. The time has come to experience the reality of God. Take your stand and we will pray. So we welcome you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That just as Melchizedek came to Abram, you come to us today to feed us. So we lift up our hearts before you and give ourselves to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen.